Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 29. Precious Word of God to Genesis chapter 29. The songs have been appropriate. The passages of Scripture read appropriate for us to spend a few minutes and think about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. I'd like to do it this way. Since the New Testament and the whole Bible, the whole Bible from beginning to end, including the last chapter, does emphasize that we are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be the marriage supper of the Lamb that the end of the Bible tells us about and leading up to that. His church of the Old Covenant was called His bride. He was married to Israel. Jeremiah chapter 3 tells us. And we want to take that metaphorical relationship of Jesus Christ being the bridegroom and us being the bride and chase down one aspect of a marriage that was true in Bible times that is no longer true. And that's a dowry. Throughout the New Testament, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus is called to redeem, which means to buy back or to pay a price for someone or something. We have what we just heard read in Ephesians 5, He gave Himself. We have the word He bought us with His blood. We have the words purchased with His own blood. There was a transaction of buying. In certain places that was buying us back from the law, in certain places that was buying us back from God's justice, getting us out of Satan's palace. In this particular case, I want us to think about the, the purpose and role of a dowry and understand that the Lord of glory provided himself his own dowry for us. It's incomprehensible when we think about what we were in sin and what he gave for us. And I trust that it will be profitable for your souls in thinking about the Lord Jesus. Throughout the Bible, we are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. You just had Psalm 45 read to you. Sometimes we read Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 9 through 16, and some of you men may get a little uncomfortable at thinking of being the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it should not discomfort you or make you uneasy, because He is the greatest man of men ever, and we should be thrilled to be His bride and want to love Him more and more. Most any other consideration of men being a bride is repulsive to our nature, but not this one. In preparation for communion, let's hone in on the fact that in this large metaphor, in this facet of salvation, and God has given us a large number of facets of salvation, this one that involves marriage, let's remember that in Bible times, there was a transaction that took place First, to make that marriage come about. Or it couldn't come about without it. And it will help us realize the price that was paid for us and how unworthy we are to be married to the Lord of glory. I hope that you remember some things that I have preached to you recently about redemption out of the Old Testament on how, you know, an ass had to be redeemed by a lamb. If you had an ass foal on your property, remember? Uh, and and uh, you wanted to keep that ass because your family needed it, 
then you had to kill a lamb for it. And if you didn't kill a lamb for the ass, redeeming the ass, then you had to break its neck, is what the Bible said. A man could be so poor that he would sell off his daughters to be handmaidens to another man, which would make them concubines, because the Lord understood that sex would result, so they were second-class wives called concubines. But if they were no longer wanted by that man, another man could come by and redeem them, buy them back, purchase them. And these are a couple of the themes of recent months in thinking about the Lord's Supper. Tonight I want to go, this afternoon I want to go after the dowry. You're in Genesis 29. Jacob is a relatively old man and he finds himself a wife. And he makes an arrangements with her father Laban for her. And she was the younger of two sisters, and he wanted her. And Laban contracted with Jacob for Rachel for seven years of labor. In effect, his dowry. He didn't get Rachel and then worked seven years by a paper contract. He had to give Laban seven years of his life working for him, and he could get Rachel at the end. And it tells us, In verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. She was beautiful. The Bible tells us that. She was beautiful. There was a reason Jacob loved her, and that was part of it. And he said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. Then verse 20 tells us that he did it. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. And so we have a dowry or the a transaction contract like a dowry of Jacob working for Rachel. Now if you come over a few pages to Exodus 34, we'll find Shechem offering to pay any price for Jacob's daughter Dinah. Exodus chapter 34. Let's not go into all the aspects of what happened here because of time. But let's find this. It's going, to be, it's going to have to be Genesis 34, not Exodus 34. Genesis 34, forgive me. Genesis 34 and verse 12. This is Shechem, a Canaanite lad, who enticed Dinah into sleeping with him. And now this is Shechem speaking to her father and brothers. Ask me never so much dowry and gift and I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. I will pay anything, but let me have Dinah. Shechem had really fallen for Dinah, and so he's willing to pay anything. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we read about David, and it is told King Saul that David and your daughter Michael like each other a lot. And Saul said, Aha! I'll use that to my advantage to get rid of David. I'll require a strange dowry. And so it was communicated back to David that King Saul would like to give him, Michael. But instead of money, I don't want a dowry of money. I'd like a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Saul thought that that would engage David in so much risk that David would lose his life fighting the Philistines. Well, David came back with a little bag full of 200 of them. And the Bible says, counted them out one by one to King Saul. And so that was his dowry. 
It wasn't a dowry of cash that was the usual custom of 50 shekels of silver. It was 204 skins of the Philistines. Israel's price for a virgin was 50 shekels of silver, the Bible tells us. A dowry has a lot of wisdom in it, and I preached a lot about a dowry about 25 years ago or so, and uh, it's been practiced a little tiny bit in this congregation by one young man who wanted a bride so badly that he did pay a dowry for her that uh, a father required for his daughter. You'll just have to do a little exploring to find out any more than that. A dowry had a lot of wisdom attached to it. If a young man didn't have that money to put up for his wife, then uh, he doesn't deserve a wife. If he doesn't have any money to put up that dowry, it says that he hasn't worked hard enough and he hasn't saved enough to be really worthy of a wife. And so it was a, it was a qualifying thing in Israel for a man to pay a dowry to the father or the family of his bride. A dowry in the Bible is a man wanting a wife and paying her father or her family the right, for the rights to marry her. Let me say it for the third time, because some people are hard of hearing. They're Hindus. Okay, they're hard of hearing. And they're really twisted. A young man pays in order for the privilege to marry a girl. And so he pays the girl's father or her family to get the right to marry the girl. The Hindus turn it around backwards. The family of the bride pays the family of the groom for losing their daughter. That is twisted and upside down, and it results in little Indian girls being named unwanted. Because a family doesn't want a girl. Because they're going to lose her anyway to another family when she marries a man, but they're going to have to pay for losing her. It also results in bride burning. If you will go online and punch into a Google search box about bride burning, you can find out that when a man's family doesn't get a big enough reward for taking the daughter, they burn her. There's a there's an article on our website presented at a men's meeting about it. I just had to stick that in there because I love the Word of God. And the Bible tells me that it's a young man paying some money to a girl's family for getting that girl. It qualifies the man as a suitable spouse and it compensates the family for losing a worker, for losing a child. It was wonderful. The Hindus have turned it upside down, but enough about that. Think about a dowry and think about you and think about me and think about the Lord of glory and what he had to pay and what he willingly paid. He didn't work seven years for you or for me. He went to the cross of Calvary and they seemed unto him but a few moments for the joy that was set before him in saving us from our sins. Who wanted us as a wife? In God's great drama of redemption, he chose us for the bride of his only son. Amazing love. How can it be? That Christ, our God, would die for me. Amen. We can trace Jesus Christ's bride back from Ephesians chapter 5 that Brother Ed read to us to Ephesians chapter 1 where the church is mentioned again 
to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, that tell us God chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began and made us accepted in the Beloved. God wanted us to be the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. God did not choose us. God did not choose you for your glory. God chose you so that He could get Himself glory by sending Jesus Christ for you. We had no beauty. We had no reason for pity or love by the God of heaven, for we were of the same lump, made vessels of dishonor for others. When you think about a dowry, what if you're an ugly little girl and stupid and you're part of a poor family, indentured servants or something? How will you ever be married? Someone's got to be willing to pay to marry you. But you're ugly. I could elaborate, but it's not worth it. Oh, but brethren, the metaphor just doesn't work very well. Because we were worse than ugly. I mean, when we think about uh, the Lord of glory, the only begotten Son of God, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, Lord of heaven and earth, virgin-born Son of God, what kind of a bride does He deserve? Do you know how ugly you are? In sin, depravity, and filth, and rebellion. It's just not that we were born with birthmarks. We were born rebels. And we hated Him, and we loved His arch enemy, the devil. We were willing slaves. You can attach any words you want to slaves. I'm going to reserve it for myself. We were willing slaves for another man. We were slaves of the strong man. Luke chapter 11 tells us that the devil is the strong man and he had a palace and we were captive there, but we were there willing. We loved him. We were so ugly, twisted, perverted, and defiled And we loved being with the enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of a dowry were we worth? We had no value. For we were ugly, perverse, odious, filthy women. Beyond compare, if we're going to take the Lord's metaphor and really embrace it. What kind of women were we? Does the Bible do this? How about Ezekiel chapter 16 where that little baby girl is not wanted and thrown out into a field to the loathing of her and she's left to bleed. She is not supple. Her navel was not cut. She wasn't salted. She wasn't protected at all. But the Lord came through that field. And He came through that field and He was like the Lord that Daniel read to us from Psalm 45. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty. Thou fairest among men rode through that field and saw that little baby girl and said, Live! Live! It says it was the time of love. We, I, was that little baby girl. 
depraved and wicked. And he said, live. And he did a whole lot more. If this symbolic marriage, the symbolism that God has chosen, if this symbolic marriage required a virgin, were we virgins? No way. We were defiled with Satan and the world. The Bible speaks repeatedly of the whoredom of men to run after every kind of God and false form of worship and the harlotry and the spiritual fornication and the spiritual adultery. We were filled with it, full of it. We loved the world. We embraced it. We got our pleasures from it. We couldn't even think about Him. But He came for us. He came for us. We had no hope or reason to ever be married but to be the slaves of Satan forever and to go to his eternal place of rest, which will not be restful, but he'll be tormented day and night before the angels of heaven. He was the strong man who had us in his palace and we liked it there. What kind of a dowry were we worth? We weren't worth any dowry at all. 50 shekels of silver was the dowry of a virgin. We weren't worth anything. There was no earthly reason or human logic to have spent a dime for us as the Lord of glory rode in this universe. Grace is poured into thy lips. He is fairer than the children of men. Ride prosperously. The Lord of glory. How will we ever be saved from our destitution and desolation and loneliness. Yet, it's far worse than that. We were not just the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ and the slaves of His enemy, the devil. There was a legal claim against us a legal claim against us a little bit more than 50 shekels of silver. The legal claim against us was a threefold death. To die physically, to die spiritually, and to die eternally. Anyone trying to marry us would have to pay off a legal claim against us of three deaths. Ugly as can be. A rebellious enemy to every overture. A lover. Willing lover. And followed him everywhere. The devil himself. And three claims of death against us. Now what kind of a dowry needs to be paid? That's a dowry. Now we're talking about something. Something against an enemy. Ugly, defiled Lover of his own enemy and under the curse of death. And yet it was paid. It was paid to God's justice by which Satan had an eternal claim against us because of what our parents did in the Garden of Eden. In the plan of redemption, God is seen in several roles. He's God. He's judge. He's father. You know, when you look at these metaphors the Bible uses to to expand and beautify salvation to us, God has different roles in it. There is a sense in which we were the devil's slave, but the dowry freed us from him because we were bought out of his kingdom. The stronger man came and 
broke into that palace of the strong man. This is how Jesus described it in Luke chapter 11. We were captive. We were hopeless. We were without God and without hope in the world. In the palace of the strong man. But the stronger man came, broke into that palace, and took us out and paid the dowry for us. A great redemption was paid to satisfy infinite justice and to buy us everlasting beauty. It's an incredible story. It's the gospel story. It's glad tidings of good things. What was the dowry price? It was the blood of God's Son. The life of the Son of God to release us for marriage. You know, 1 Peter 1, 18-20 tells us that we were not redeemed by corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Remember when I preached on that to you, gold and silver are considered the precious metals. But we were not redeemed with gold and silver that corrupts compared to something that never corrupts, and that is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's Son gave Himself as the dowry to be married to us. That is ridiculously, incredibly, wildly, bizarre and unfair and unreasonable. But that is what grace is. That's grace toward us. If this makes little marital sense to you, you're right. God's desire for holy drama inspired it. Unbelievable. The Bible says He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. The plan of salvation is one incredible drama designed for the glory of God that He would come down and rescue us and pay the dowry for us. And that dowry freed us from all legal claims. That dowry included changing our whole attitude toward Him. And that dowry included making us beautiful so that the King would desire our beauty. Did you read those words from Psalm 45? The King shall desire thy beauty. Be very careful. The King shall greatly desire thy beauty. Now that is a dowry. That is a dowry. That He would pay that for us. We didn't have any hope. What are you going to do? Put a sign out front? I'm ugly. I'm stupid. I hate you. And there's three claims of death against me. Will you buy me? We had no hope. The Bible is so wonderful. In the gospel story of the Lord Jesus Christ saving us. The end goal of God was not a sensible transaction, but one of infinite grace for equal praise. And we shall praise Him forever. And we're going to praise Him today before we leave. Who remembers that the dowry was paid? You know, if a dowry was paid and then it was forgotten, that'd be terrible. But is it remembered? God remembers that He paid the dowry by our names being written in the book of life of the Lamb slain, which was the dowry price for us. The redemption of our souls. Jesus lives forever to intercede for us, reminding constantly that He paid, ready for us to be there with Him. He will save to the uttermost, not losing a single one. That is what makes the gospel that we understand so special that Jesus will not lose a single one of those God gave Him to redeem and marry. Not one. John chapter 6, John chapter 10, John chapter 17, I will lose none of them. He said, the great price was paid 
and accepted and nothing can ever separate us from his family. Unbelievable. But did the dowry leave any wealth left over for us to enjoy with our husband? You know, if a poor family scraped together a dowry or borrowed for it, the future could really be bleak for the young couple. Listen, the magnitude of our salvation cannot be put in human terms. I have. Do we have a Bible basis for that? It's called the unsearchable riches of Christ and the unspeakable gift. Is that enough? We can only try. We can only try a little bit. If a poor family scraped together a dowry or borrowed for the dowry, the future could be bleak for the young couple. There was no money left. So she's got a husband. She doesn't live at home anymore, and they go off and live in their little shack, but there's no, there's no money to enjoy life together. But with God as his father, there is an inheritance of things beyond our imagination. 1 Corinthians 2.9 tells us, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man. We've never even imagined what things God has in store for them that love him. What things God has in store for his bride. Jesus has been promoted to the right hand of glory and rules heaven and earth. After paying that kind of a dowry of his own life. He is at the right hand of the majesty on high. We shall sit with him in his throne and rule with him over the nations. Get used to it. Unbelievable. The dowry that was paid for us. Is the father still committed to the marriage? A father could buy a wife for his son and let them struggle through life themselves. A father could buy a wife for his son and require a prenuptial. I'm going to give you my son. My son's going to die for you, but uh, we're going to have a little prenuptial agreement here that everything else I own, you don't have any right to it whatsoever. Now that's commonly done by rich men and for good reason in the generation in which we live. They get prenuptial agreements so that the wife can't rape them financially when she wants to leave him after she gets tired of his goodies. It's called a prenuptial agreement that uh, you may not have the house, the estate, the assets. You know, I'll give you a million a month for the rest of your life, but you can't have my real wealth, and they still want to complain. But you know what we have from the Lord of heaven? We have Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? How's that? for a dowry being paid, and no restrictions put on how much claim we have on the other family's assets. Do you understand? That is incredible. We are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. The wicked, ugly, defiled, filthy enemy of God is a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Romans 8.17. Why do we have the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a monthly time for us. Maybe it should be more often, but a monthly time for us in which we remember the price the Lord Jesus Christ paid for us to be His bride. If He had not paid that price, we would still be in the palace of the strong man, loving it there, and going to join Him for eternity in the lake of fire, and we wouldn't even know it until we were there. 
we have the Lord's Supper, the new covenant represented by the cup. When we hold the cup up and say, this cup is the New Testament or the new covenant in my blood, by this metaphor is the marriage covenant. As it is used in Ezekiel chapter 16. My brethren, listen. When we have a wedding, when men have a wedding, they say these words. With this ring, I thee wed the Lord of glory on his white horse, riding majestically with his sword at his side, stops and says to you and me, with my blood, I thee wed. Our Lord Jesus Christ. We strictly judge those at His table because no one deserves to be here if you don't love that Lord Jesus Christ and want to live for Him. It's called communion because we're having common union together about what Jesus Christ did for us. What should the effect of such a dowry be on our lives? 2 Corinthians 11 and verses 2 and 3, Paul said, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I have espoused you to one husband and I have espoused you as a chaste virgin to him. We want to be chaste virgins, brides of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the church at Corinth that had already believed, already been baptized, had been formed into a church, but the Apostle Paul was still wanting to present them on a daily, weekly, and then an eternal basis when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ to present them as a chaste bride. That's the effect it should have on us. When we flirt with the world, we commit spiritual adultery taught many, many times in this church. When we flirt with the world, we are committing spiritual adultery against our husband. This world is his enemy. This world crucified the Lord of glory. This world stands in wickedness and and iniquity and sin and everything contrary to his father and to him. And when we flirt with it, we are committing adultery. Think about it in whatever graphic terms you need to, that God of heaven who sees everything can look on your life and he knows what you think about and he knows your thoughts are adulterous. He knows your words are adulterous. He knows your lives are adulterous. When we, that's what James 4, 4 says. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. They're called adulterers and adulteresses because they're befriending and flirting with the world. Let us gird up the loins of our mind and let us put off the old man, put on the new. Let us keep the list of things that we heard in the first service this morning so that we can be a chaste virgin of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the ferocity of Hebrews 10 verses 26 through 31. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a fearful looking for of judgment and a fiery indignation that shall devour the adversaries. Because it goes on to say, of how much sore punishment should we be thought worthy of receiving if we trod underfoot the Son of God and count the blood of the covenant 
an unholy thing. That was done by the Jews by being converted to Christ and then going back to animal sacrifices. You're counting the blood of the Son of God as an unholy thing. But we consider it that, we count it that, when we go and play with this world, the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Father. The last verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at the effect that it had on the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ should restrict our lives and constrain us to one course of action. Because we thus judge. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge. Here's how we should think about the transaction. That if one died for all, then we're all dead. All of us sitting in this room, we were dead and condemned to death and Jesus died for us. And that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. The Apostle Paul saw it clearly. I have muddied the waters in my inability to preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you will think about that little girl who doesn't have a chance in the universe, and she has sold her soul and sold her body to the devil, and she's in his palace... She's the enemy of God, and she's under a threefold claim of God's law to put her to death, to be delivered from that, united with Christ, to spend eternity with Him, made beautiful in His sight, all charges of death taken away from her, so that the Bible can say, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That is a gospel message, and it should change our lives. It changed Paul's life. And when we think of that little girl, she should be the most willing, the most loyal, the most loving wife, the man that rescued her ever had. We ought to be the most willing, the most loving, the most loyal that Jesus Christ has ever had. What is the Lord's Supper for? It's to remember. He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till He come. Mm -hmm. This do. In remembrance of me. This do. In remembrance of me. He came by. And he said live. He came by and said. It was the time of love. He came by and made a covenant with us. He came by. And died on the cross of Calvary. In our place. We have the Lord's supper. For that reason. Amen.